A Partenaire Convair 580 is on its way to Hamburg, Germany, for its passengers to christen a ship when they plummet from the sky. What caused this flight to crash into the ocean? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Any hi. news? Brendan soloed. Oh, yeah. Yay. Brendan Woo! did his solo. He's fun. not here for this, but... Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, but for those of you that know Brendan, who's been on here before, he did his first solo flight in an airplane. That's a big deal if you're an aviator. So good for him. Yeah, go for him. You get to fly alone in an airplane for the first time. And Miranda and I are drinking, so you might hear ice. Yes. We no. did ask about a newsletter Newsletter today <laughs> on our Facebook. Yeah. And so everywhere. We've been throwing this idea around of doing an emailed newsletter. So far, we've only had one person answer, but I only posted it like two hours ago. So, so we'll see where this goes. Yeah. If you want to know what that's all about, check out the social medias. Basically, we just want to make see if... There's sufficient interest to create a monthly newsletter where potentially we'd be talking about some stuff that will happen in accidents in the next month, maybe some stuff that happened the previous month, and then um, some other stuff you guys want to know depending on who answers those questions. So if you want to, you know, be into that conversation, go check out the social media stuff. Don't forget to submit your holiday listener stories. This week is the last week to submit your story, and it needs to be done today, because we're probably going to record it today. The, this is airing the 15th? Yeah. Okay. So we're trying to do this before the week of uh, the holidays for so, us. So we're not editing? Yeah. So that we can enjoy our holidays? Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to get ahead of ourselves, but that's a hard thing to do. Woo! So make sure you give us your holiday stories for December so that we can get that chickadee checked and done. Yeah. And that'll probably come out by the end of this week. So. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the announcements that we have, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So what are we covering today, Nick? So today we are covering Partner Flight 394. Thank you to our... Patron Chris for recommending this yeah, one. Thanks, Chris. Again. So this is kind of an interesting one because we're talking about an airplane we haven't talked about yet. Mm -hmm. So this happened on September 8th of 1993, and this was a Convair CV340 or a 580. So it's actually a Convair 580, which is just a modified 340. The 340 was the original version. It was a piston version of this Convair. It's a twin, twin engine airplane, lower wing. It's an, an older propeller airplane, and these were actually really, really common uh, for a, quite a long time as regional carriers, and for a lot of charter airlines, they could go actually some pretty good distance, too, but they were workhorses, that's for sure, and this one was a 580, so this one was actually a modified 340 in that it went from piston engines to turboprop. It was modified with turboprop engines, so this made it quite a bit more efficient and quite a bit faster. A lot more torque for the weight. So that's a nice thing. This airplane, the airplane we'll be talking about today, had the tail number of Lima November hyphen P 
Papa Alpha Alpha. Now, that's not a normal tail number for us here in the United States, and that's because we're not talking about a flight in the United States. Nope. We're talking about a flight in Northern Europe. This airline specifically, Partner, was based in Oslo, Norway. The captain for this flight was Newt Vietten, Vietten, something like that. Oh boy. He was 59 years old. He had 16,779 hours total, of which 1,200 hours were on the type. The first officer was Finn Petter Berg. Three names. He was also 59 years old. And he also had 16,731 hours. So they were very close in hours. 779 versus 731. Wow. Yes. He had 675 hours on the type, though. So he had about half as much as the captain. Both were close friends and had flown together for many years. Both were very experienced pilots. Yes, they were, with around 17,000 hours. The first officer was also the flight ops manager at Partner. So he was the flight ops manager at the airline itself. He took care of the whole flight operations department. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yes, it is. This was a charter flight from Oslo, Norway, to Hamburg in Germany with 50 passengers and five crew. So that meant that there were also three cabin crew. And this was a charter flight for, do you remember what they said about the charter flight? So it was chartered by a shipping company who was taking half of its office staff to the port in Hamburg for the christening and naming ceremony for a ship. Right. Oh, cool. And one of them, one of their newer people, they always gave the honor of christening the ship to one of their new hires or newer hires. And so they would get to go on the trip and they would write the speech. They'd be there to present the name and speak at the christening of the ship and all this and that. So that person was on board as well as one of the staff members. The flight was due to depart at 3 p.m., but was delayed for an hour. Why? Well, Partner hadn't paid its bill to the catering company or to the Civil Aviation Administration of Norway. They hadn't paid for any of this, for the use of the services or the facilities, none of that. So the flight crew were informed of the reason that they were not released for their flight. The flight crew joked about paying the bill themselves. Well, it turns out the first officer had enough money in his pocket to actually do so. So the first officer paid the bills and they were on their way. I would have been pissed if I had to pay out of my pocket Yes. for the airline's BS. Not, that, that tells me that this is not going to go good. This is just the first time you're going to get mad. <laughs> <laughs> this, I promise. It's, it's kind of like last week where I'm like, here's the omen of how well this flight's going to go. Oh, yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. Also contributing to the delay was a maintenance issue that had to be addressed for the plane to be airworthy. Earlier in September, the same plane had been experiencing an issue with the left AC power system. The left AC generator was replaced, but the issue persisted. The minimum equipment list, which... In an airplane, there's always a minimum equipment list in the operating handbook um, for the airplane that tells you this is exactly what you need to have for the airplane to be flyable. If it doesn't have at least this as a minimum, you can't fly it. So there's a lot of things that aren't actually required. Like in a lot of airplanes, you don't always need a second radio. You don't always need a second form of navigation. You don't always need, you know, they have these things, but if one of them stops working, 
as long as you have specifically what's in the minimum equipment list, you, you can, can fly. still go. So the minimum equipment list for this airplane required that the plane have two sources of electrical power. Normally, this would come from the left generator and the right generator, which are in the engines. But because of the issue with the left AC generator, they had to devise a backup plan. After discussing with the maintenance personnel at Oslo for the airline, the captain made the decision to fly the flight with the APU, or the auxiliary power unit, running for the entire flight as the second source of power. So the APU is a second engine, the auxiliary power unit, is a second engine, or a third engine in this case, that's mounted in the tail. And it is... It sits at idle. It doesn't produce any thrust. It doesn't do anything like that. It's purely a gas generator. But they literally use just old engines from other airplanes um, that are really high stock. Like in a lot of airliners like the 737 and such, they use old Learjet engines. Put them in the tail. Work great. Because they don't have to do much. They just have to produce power. So as long as they run at idle and produce enough power, good to go. And usually they're only used on the ground. Right. They're usually only used on the ground. In this case, the captain made the executive decision to call that the second source of power because he was going to leave the APU on for the entire flight. So, and for those of you who don't know, the APU is usually the thing that runs when you get on the plane. That runs the AC, runs the lights, all that stuff. That's why, like, the lights flicker and stuff when they start the engines. Yes. (laughs) Because they're switching. Yeah. Yeah, they're switching from APU power to generator power. And the airplanes typically do that automatically because the APU is also used typically as a way of jump-starting the engines. You have to have electrical power somewhere along the line to start those engines. Well, the APU produces that power. If they don't have ground power to do it, typically with most airplanes, it's done by the APU. So that said, after discussing with maintenance personnel, the captain made that decision, and this was jotted down in the maintenance release for the flight. That was what he told the maintenance personnel to write down as making this airplane airworthy, and they did so. The flight finally departed at 3.59 p.m. and 50 seconds, so an hour later than they were planning. The flight climbed to the planned cruising altitude of flight level 220, or 22,000 feet, but on its way to flight level 220, as they crossed through 18,000 feet at 4.16 p.m., the crew was informed by the Oslo ATC that was handling the flight that a recommended 10-degree turn heading change to the right was recommended by the ATC to deal with the westerly winds that were affecting the flight at the time. They were expecting strong westerly winds, and that could push them off course, so they did this correction. At 4.22 p.m., the flight was informed that the radar service from Oslo, air traffic control, was terminated, and that they were about to enter the Danish-controlled airspace within two minutes. And they were told to contact the Copenhagen Air Traffic Control Center. The flight reached its cruising altitude of flight level 220, 22,000 feet, at 4.23 p.m., and about 30 seconds after reaching that altitude, they contacted the Copenhagen Air Traffic Controller. The flight informed the Air Traffic Controller that they were at flight level 220, and the Air Traffic Controller confirmed that they had radar contact of the flight. That was the last time they would talk to an Air Traffic Controller. About 12 minutes passed while they were at cruising altitude, then something interesting happened. An F-16, a fighter jet, passed by at a supersonic or near-supersonic speed, passing within about a 1,000 feet above the flight over the open water, heading in the opposite direction. The pilots watched in astonishment, and the flight crew then returned to their normal duties after watching this airplane go by. A few moments passed, calm, 
when the airplane suddenly turned hard to the right, beginning to roll over and dive straight toward the sea. The crew fought and fought and fought with the airplane, but it was fighting them back. The air traffic controller noticed this hard right turn off of their planned course, and they also noticed that the altitude was changing. The air traffic controller made several calls to request info about the deviation from this flight plan. Suddenly, but briefly, the radar for, for several air traffic controllers within that area showed several pings or objects in the sky around the airplane, but it all disappeared from radar shortly thereafter. Miranda's making faces. Yeah. Okay, to be fair, I know what you mean when you say it's going to be a red herring, because my first indication is, did they get hit by another fl- plane? And your answer is going to be, no, that's not what happens. Nope. So, there you go. <laughs> we'll get more into that in a minute. But it, it worries me that there's other things on the radar that just disappear. Yes. <laughs> the plane crashed near the north coast of Denmark in the sea around 4.40 p.m. during daylight hours. The air traffic controller made several more calls to attempt to contact the flight to no avail, because they were in the sea. At 4.42 p.m., both controllers had that had been handling the flight in Norway and in Denmark initiated a search and rescue operation jointly. The airplane was nearly completely destroyed by the impact forces with the water, and all 55 on board perished. Yikes. Which meant that for this shipping company that chartered the flight, that's half their staff. That sucks. Yes. And that debris became scattered all throughout a, what was it, two kilometer? Yep. A two kilometer path within the ocean and most of it sunk. So this made it difficult to get to. Get any of that stuff. That sucks. This investigation was performed by the Aircraft Accident Investigation Board of Norway. Hey. That's a new one for us. Yeah. Amidst the wreckage, both black boxes were found, but both were damaged and were sent to labs for data retrieval. It was during this process that it was found that the Flight Data Recorder, or FDR, had specific and peculiar damage. This was an old analog model that still ran with a needle recording the data. It wasn't recording as many parameters as it was supposed to, so it wasn't recording Gs. It was only recording pressure altitude, airspeed, and heading. Furthermore, the needle was recording altitude twice on the foil, so it was sent to the manufacturer in the United States for further analysis. The cockpit voice recorder also had its own issues. Rather than recording the last moments of the flight, the last thing recorded in the cockpit were the conversations before taking off. Oh, that's not a good sign. No, it's not. That's either an electrical issue or a, a wire cut somewhere issue. I'll get into it. Oh. I'll get into it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Do that. It was found that the CVR had been modified so that it would automatically switch power to the primary AC system once the engines were up and running for takeoff, rather than being done manually using checklists. But this modification was prone to dust and corrosion and would often fail, and it was no longer on the pilot's checklist to check the CVR status after the switchover to engine power. It was only checked during the pre-start checklist. Well, that's dumb. Yeah, so in other words, it wasn't ever checked at any point prior to actually leaving the ground. But well, it, it was, but not when it was not, on engine power. N- right, not when it was on engine power before leaving the ground. And then it didn't work. This malfunction was later found on other planes of the same type. Yeah, so, you need to fix that. 
That's a big problem. So yes. it says on the same type abroad. So I don't know if that just means probably everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, abroad just means like other countries. So. The 580 became really common because the 340 was common. There was actually a lot more than just those two versions of the basic Convair Dwin prop airplane. But those were the two bigger versions because the 340 was the initial really popular version of this airplane. And then they were converted to the 580. My, so, one, my one stipulation that comes usually with these uh, international reports, though, is that this is translated... So if something doesn't really come across in translation, they even say that's not our fault. Refer to the Norwegian one, which I can't they, read Norwegian. Yeah, they say that in the report. They're like, if there's anything that appears to be missing from this report, please refer to the original report for full factual information. I'm not doing that for somewhat obvious reasons. I am not Norse. I don't speak Norwegian. Nope. We have Norwegian listeners, though. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't go out of your way to the re- to read the report. They're dry. That's why we exist. Yes. Anyway, thus, the investigators didn't really garner any useful information from the cockpit voice recorder other than that the airline wasn't paying their bills and the poor flight crew had to pay the caterer out of their own wallets. Okay, seriously, that would have ticked me off so bad. I know it would have. I would have been like, I earned this money and you're making me pay your debts? Yeah. Yep. Excuse you. The first suspicion of the cause of this disaster was something that was very much on the front of everyone's minds, given that this happened about a year after a particularly devastating crash. About a year earlier, a plane exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, due to a bomb on board. Yeah. And many suspected that the same thing had happened here, since it is very rare for a plane to go down during cruising flight, especially without a distress call. Most crashes happen during takeoff and landing, as you might have noticed from all of our episodes. Most yes. of them? Yes. Most of them. There's a few we've done. I know, but statistically... But yes, statistically, it's almost unheard of, but it's heard of. Some journalists actually found that a prime minister, I think it was the Norwegian prime minister, had actually flown on this very same plane a few days prior. Maybe this was an assassination that went wrong. Investigators, however, did not find any evidence of a bomb on board the plane, but they did find trace amounts of military explosive residue. What? This gets so much more complicated, and it's just a whole chain of like, wow, that was all happening at the same time, and there's a whole reason this... Anyways, continue. This opened an entire can of worms that, I mean, they should have gone through, but really didn't need to. Um, In the same region of the ocean, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a.k.a. NATO, was performing a military exercise by the name of Sharp Spear. The initial thought was they maybe accidentally shot down the plane? The answer is no. They didn't do that. Nope. There wasn't that much explosive residue on board, and investigators eventually wrote off the trace amounts as contamination from the ocean floor, which was littered with old munitions from both exercises such as that, as well as previous wars. World War II was yeah. highly fought by submarines in that area. That's so, what I was thinking, World War Two. They're like, eh, it's probably from the ocean floor. Yeah, which is just a whole chain of events that's like, wow, there was this whole controversy that was all over the media in Norway and in Germany about this being a potential bomb, and then they found residue. That resonated with media immediately. They were like, oh my god, it was a bomb. And then they were like, wait, 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 no. No. (laughs) It wasn't. This just happened. That has TWA 800 vibes. I don't like it. Yeah, that didn't happen. 
The military also took this time to discount the F-16 that flew overhead. Some suspected wake turbulence, which was the red herring I was speaking of more so. Well, I mean, okay, they so were above them, though? Yes, but only by a thousand feet, and they were going supersonic in the opposite direction. Typically, supersonic flight includes a large shock wave, and actually there are images of this that have been captured that are quite incredible of what that shock wave looks like, and it is quite something. So... They also very highly suspected that it could be a sonic shockwave that disrupted the air around the airplane. Yeah, but something was falling off of it. So unless it got rattled by the shockwave and I mean, fell it is a off. Shockwave. It is a shockwave. But they determined that that wasn't the cause because... Investigators determined that in order to have an effect, it would have had to be closer than a thousand meters. It would have had to have been like in the dozens of meters. Mm. And the jet was like, nah, man, <laughs> I was more than a thousand feet above. Wasn't me. Yeah. So. They would have had to have been within, yeah, really, really, really close range. And they weren't. Based on the size of the wreckage path, about two kilometers wide, as we mentioned, it was clear to investigators that the plane actually broke up midair rather than hitting the ocean surface in one piece. So they began looking at the airframe. Maybe something went wrong in the fuselage section, like the comet. That also went down from cruising altitude? Yep. They did specifically look at the windows to see specifically if they were dealing with another comet situation, but determined that all damage in the windows and around the windows was from impact forces. One thing that had them starting on the theory of an airframe failure was that the engines were not the originals, as Nick had mentioned. The original engines were piston-driven, but they had been upgraded to turboprops, which are much more powerful, but also have a different vibration spectrum. Maybe it caused a weakness in the structure. Investigators did find some repair work that was subpar. Insufficient, you might say. But they did not find any signs of fatigue in these regions, and documentation around these repairs made it unclear when they had been done, as well as who performed the work. You know, great signs. Yeah, the documentation was terrible. As it usually is with things like this, when it comes up on this podcast. So investigators moved on to the engines themselves, examining the propellers as well as the bodies of the engines as well. But what was more interesting and began them down the proper path was the third generator, the APU. The odd part was that there were pieces of melted plastic, plastic that matched parts from the cabin, which meant that the APU was running at the time of the crash. Now, we knew this. They did not know this. Ah. So they then began looking over the APU as a whole. They, they found the documentation from maintenance, blah, 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 that they were running it. Whatever. But in looking at the APU, they found that this, this unit is mounted to the aircraft structure at four different points. The two main supports were intact, and one of the additional mounts broke during impact. But the fourth one, that one had signs of fatigue failure. The front support was locally manufactured, not by the manufacturer, and had been poorly welded, and with the wrong material. The welding broke, leaving the APU to be supported on three out of the four supports. So in this picture, it, the two are kind of mirrored, but on the right picture, you can see those little black triangles that it's pointing an arrow at. Those are welds, and they cracked. And so those weld, that weld is actually these. Hmm. Okay. I don't know what these are pointing at. Something. It says. Whatever. 
Wear marks from the back support showed that this failure did not happen on this flight, and it had been flying that way for long before this flight. Which is great news, I guess. Awesome news. At this point, about 90% of the wreckage had been recovered, and investigation crews were putting together the tail, but found that some maintenance doors were missing. These maintenance doors are made of an aluminum honeycomb, and they are installed so that maintenance teams have access to the weights that move up and down to control the rudder. Investigators determined that these were the parts that the Swedish and Danish radars had seen falling away because aluminum reflects radar very well. Yeah, so specifically when they saw all those different pings all of a sudden, just before they all disappeared from radar? It was these maintenance doors. They were seeing the maintenance doors fall off the airplane. Okay, I'm still having trouble. So I can see why having a failed support would be a problem, but it had three other supports, and I can see why a door falling off the back of the airplane's bad, but it said it went into a right turn, so I'm a little confused as to how that would affect like engine power or rudder power or whatever. Did it have well, three other, or was it only two other supports? Three. So okay, that's right. It has one, I think, on the left and the right, and then there's a forward and a back, and it was the forward one that had fractured. So it had a tendency to rotate front to back. Gotcha. Okay. Don't quote me on that. I'm totally spewing that because I didn't look at the pictures. But you'll see why this is important anyways. It is contributory, but not causal, if that makes sense. Okay. Let's circle back to that flight data recorder, shall we? After taking time to bring the top expert out of retirement, to which I'm like, I would not, but okay. The manufacturer found that the needle recording the altitude had left marks on the foil in excess of its normal track. Because the flight data recorder had the capability of recording hundreds of hours, the manufacturer looked back and found that that this strong vibration had been that way for months. A strong vibration in the tail. This actually explained why the G-parameter wasn't being recorded. It had been out of service for extended periods of time previously, and the heading parameter also showed odd readings at times. Investigators determined that this was a result of being exposed to an outside vibration. But there was a period of time where there was a change in the pattern of the vibration. So investigators began looking at all components of the tail for any sign of something failing that would lead to vibration. Obviously, they already knew about the one mount for the APU. They took the maintenance logs and lined them up with the flight data recorder to find out why that one change had occurred in the readings and what maintenance was done at that time on the tail. This time was July and August of 1989, and there was heavy maintenance done that matched with the FDR. And during that overhaul, the right rear vertical stabilizer attachment was disassembled, inspected, and a new pin and sleeve was installed. There were a total of four of these, and they basically attached the entire tail to the structure bulkhead. So literally, the whole vertical stabilizer and the tail of the airplane was attached by four bolts, and they were all replaced. No. One was replaced. That's right. One was replaced. The other three attachment assemblies remained in place. Nine flights followed with reduced or no vibration on the flight data recorder, but then they started again with increasing frequency. It got so bad that the double lines appeared on the majority of the last 24 flights, worst of all on the accident flight. So investigators took a look at all four of these bolts, which all four were actually recovered from the wreckage. The right rear, unsurprisingly, looks pretty good. It's in the top left. Yes. It's the others that were a little concerning. They have overload fractures, 
and investigators found that the rear left bolt was completely loose based on the wear marks. Investigators performed many metallurgical tests and found that the left rear bolt sleeve did not meet the hardness specifications, but the new one, the rear right, did. They found that the other two did not meet specifications either. The Convair specifications required a Vickers hardness of 390. That's a really... So, it's really hard to measure hardness with any, like, tangible unit. So, there are multiple hardness measuring systems. This is just one of them. It's kind of arbitrary. You measure hardness by, like, dropping a pinhead into the metal, and it's weird. I'm not going to go super far into it. Basically, they didn't meet standards. So they required a Vickers hardness of 390, and the three older fittings only had Vickers hardness between 200 and 230. To translate it into more tangible terms, this meant that they could endure 100,000 pounds per square inch of stress, as opposed to the specification of 160 to 180,000 PSI required by Convair. They were also manufactured out of tolerance, with deviations of 10 to 20 times that allowed by the manufacturer's instructions. So that's fun. So they were vastly out of tolerance. They yeah. They were highly not manufactured correctly. So did the tail just come off? I'll, 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 I'm getting there. Maintenance documents show that these older fittings were installed under the previous owner, Allegheny Airlines, and the work was carried out by the airline standards by Kelowna Flightcraft, which is abbreviated as KFC, and was really distracting through the entire report. <laughs> <laughs> Chicken. Mm, fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> These documents did not specify where they got the parts, and KFC did not have a tracking or registration system in place until 1987, when the work was done in 1986. All they knew is that they got those parts from somewhere between their five different suppliers. Nick will get more into that in a minute. So now we know what was causing the vibration. But why did it cause the plane to crash, and why hadn't it happened earlier? All the evidence showed that the vibrations had been there for some time, but it had never been enough to damage any structures. But then somebody that day decided that rather than fixing the generator in one of the engines, they would just fly with the APU. No problem, right? Wrong. The vibration of the APU alone, but coupled with the one broken support mount, added to the already existing vibration, but did so in a devastating way. The vibrations were at such a frequency that they actually fed each other, each crest and trough of a wave increasing the other until the whole tail was vibrating so hard that the rudder began oscillating too. And when that happened, it began to move to its maximum limit on both sides, which is when the plane began to lose control. It's kind of similar to American Airlines Flight 587. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that time it was actually being over-controlled. In this instance, it was happening just from the entire tail vibrating, and it caused the weights within those doors to begin to swing, and it hit those maintenance doors, which is why they flew off. The rudder then jammed, causing the whole vertical stabilizer to bend and tear at the hinges and caused a rapid roll and ultimate crash. Jeez. Now, in the Air Disasters episode, which is technically and air crash investigations episode, they go into this whole thing about how it's similar to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge incident, which if you don't know about that, look it up. It's crazy. The whole premise that physics teachers use that event to teach is about resonant frequency, 
there was the bridge has a resonant frequency and then there was a crosswind going over it that teachers say resonated with the same resonant frequency and caused the entire thing to warp and distort and eventually fall to bits. Turns out that's not technically what happened, and civil engineers are probably screaming right now listening to this, which is why I didn't use it as an example. I just want to let you know that that's not what everyone was taught in physics class. That's not correct. But it's similar in this regard in that... Vibrations did cause this. They added to each other. They added to each other. So they... Basically, they did the opposite of noise-canceling headphones. So what noise-canceling headphones do is they take in the wave that you're hearing, and they generate the opposite. So wherever there's a crest, it inserts a trough, and that's how noise-canceling headphones work. Well, if you do the opposite, where wherever there's a crest in the wave, you add another crest, well, now it's amplified. And the more you amplify that wave, the more it vibrates, then you have catastrophe. And that's basically what happened here. Mm -hmm. I just got to say that the... The front right vertical slab, that looks effed up. Because it was. Yes. The entire thing was loose. Yep. I thought the back left one was. It was. Were all of them just loose except for the one that got replaced? Yeah. Hmm. That's why there was a vibration. And it had been there, which is what was causing the vibration on the FDR. And it went away when they replaced one of the attachments. But then it started getting bad again. So, allow me to explain and allow me to make you extremely mad. Great. Because what this actually was, was counterfeit parts. What? They were using counterfeit parts? That's why they weren't up to standards. Oh my gosh. You've got to be kidding me. And they probably didn't even know it. Turns out this whole thing was a booming industry because it was so cheap to do and you could do it under the radar so, ha, uh, because there were no tracking systems in place. So counterfeit parts are unbelievably good at hiding themselves. And we've gotten a lot better at figuring this out. But the way that counterfeit parts are generally produced is they take old parts or very similar looking parts and they will grind them down. They will smooth them out. They'll go through all this work to make them look like brand new parts that are identical to the the real parts, but the reality is is the internal structure of them might not be hard enough, dense enough, strong enough to withstand the forces that they're supposed to. They just look identical. And these are more aptly named in the industry, unapproved parts. So that means the FAA or whatever governing body of the country that the airplane's origin is in as well as the manufacturer's recommendations for parts, they're unapproved per those standards. So they are unflyable. Well, this started this crash, as well as a few others, started to uncover a massive industry. And I mean massive. So the example that the episode gave was that a single bolt similar to this, properly manufactured, cost around $250. Whereas they could get it from a spare parts person for 30 bucks. Oh, I wouldn't trust that. Well, they did. Oh, God. It's that whole money thing. and So they did it to save a, a, a buck, is well, what you're telling me. And you might have noticed this from the beginning, because they didn't pay their bills. So they were already it turned out that cash. It turned out that partner was barely alive. They barely had any money at the time. 
So after this incident, it actually kind of hit the U.S. first as to how to proceed regarding counterfeit parts. Well, the first step was to kind of determine how prevalent is this. So the FAA decided to audit their own stuff. Let's look at our parts and see what we're dealing with. 39% of their parts come from parts brokers, and they found that of those, 95% were unapproved parts. So that means that basically really close to 39% of all parts within the FAA's inventory alone were unapproved parts. And many of these parts brokers are in the Miami area. This is important because there was a big, really big recent event that had to do with counterfeit parts coming from Miami. Just to prove how big this industry is and how much of a problem this still is, you might recall a certain Lion Air crash that happened. Of a 737 MAX had a part come from a parts broker in Miami that was not working it properly. Turns out, it turns out when they tried to debunk the, the MCAS situation on that Lion Air airplane, they had already decided, okay, something's wrong with this airplane. Let's replace the the wind vane sensor that drives the MCAS. So they bought one from a parts broker in Miami. Oh. And it wasn't a real part. It was an unapproved part. They put that on the 737, and it was contributory, but again, not, not causal, causal, to the crash of the Lion Air 737 MAX. They highly discount this. Now, it's still a problem. It's still a problem. So the FAA actually conducted a bunch of undercover sting operations everywhere to find these black market counterfeit part brokers and were able to put a lot of people away. They were. How big was this problem, though? They wanted to figure this out. So they went to a lot of trouble to audit the entire industry, and they found out that the majority of parts bought from Part brokers, obviously, to airlines across the world, as well as military, general aviation, across the entire aviation industry, were affected by this. How deep did this go? The most most scrutinized airplane on Earth contained counterfeit parts. Air Force One had counterfeit parts on it. Oh, I just got chills. Uh Uh-uh. No thanks. That's... Ugh. And there's, and there's two sides to this issue. For one, the part is counterfeit. But for any part to be put on a plane, it has to have some kind of signature indicating where it came from. Turns out the, other, the flip side of this is they were also making counterfeit FAA tags. So Ooh, they would, that's high-key illegal. So they would make these tags using inspector names of certified inspectors. Of actual people. That weren't there. And turns out a lot of times these tags cost more than the parts. Yep. Bruh. They convicted hundreds of people for this black market industry. And this industry was worth many billions of dollars. Many billions of dollars. Dude. That just makes me so mad. Especially because this entire tail section was held together by counterfeit parts. Yes. Yep. Like, the fact that this didn't happen earlier honestly it took like the tail didn't fall off it took a perfect storm of events for this to happen like they're very 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 lucky that they didn't happen i mean it's horrible that it happened period right 55 people are dead because of this mm-hmm. but also you got to take into consideration that 
they were buying parts for a fraction of the price, that gives you red flags right there. Mm-hmm. If you're buying a $250 part for $30, something's wrong. You should not be putting that on your airplane. Right. And two, they're running out of money, so they can't, you know, pay bills, pay their pilots, let alone pay for maintenance. Pay for maintenance. So if this didn't happen, something else would have happened, I'm sure. Basically, yes. Because this wasn't obviously the only maintenance issue with this airplane. It had an AC generator out, and it had a broken APU mount. Yeah, The airplane was a maintenance nightmare, and that eventually caught up to itself. So, this industry, the other reason this was so difficult to track down was because these parts brokers ran through official, official businesses. So, bigger parts companies that are really well-known around the world would work with these brokers to find these parts. And it was a pretty shady business in that they were like, yeah, you say it's certified and it comes with a tag. Oh, we're good. We'll sell it for you. So official businesses would sell these, and that's why they would come from trusted sellers. But it turns out on the behind-the-scenes side of that, the brokers that would sell that would sell these parts to these distributors would be manufacturing these parts from cheap product or used or damaged product or yep. what have you. That's and the thing that gets me most, is they were taking used parts and making them, quote-unquote, new again. Right. Exactly. So, and to do that, you'd have to file it down, shave it down, polish it up, right? Which means the thickness that it originally was when it was brand new is now not the right thickness. And who knows? They could also be doing chemical treatments that make parts less hard and yes. more Con- brittle, contributing to the lower right ultimate strength of these parts, causing they, fracture. They can make them look perfect. And have the tag. But and no one's going to mechanically test every single part. Right. Because most of these people don't have the ability to do that. So we'll get into in a minute what's changed and how that has affected this industry. And what kind of issues this still has. But first, a message. Maybe. A break. Break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so now for findings. So they actually had 27 findings for this, which is pretty surprising. But some of these are really short and succinct. Some of them are a little bit longer, but they kind of all read a little bit similar. So let's just dive into some of these. I'm definitely skipping some because there was the whole everything certified. It was fine, whatever. Blah, 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 blah. But we'll dive in here. They found that maintenance instructions in use for LNPAA, which was the tail number, did not reflect the current aircraft configuration, which was a causal factor. So, in other words, the maintenance documents sucked. Yeah, not good. They didn't reflect how the airplane was actually... Performing. Well, what was available. How the airplane was at the time of the accident. The maintenance documents should have told everything that was wrong with the airplane, everything that had been fixed with the airplane, all these things. Didn't say. 
Well, and we've talked about it before. If you touch anything on the airplane, it's supposed to be documented. Yes. So if something like this happens, they know. Right. Uh-huh. Similarly, they found that the operator's minimum equipment list system for the CB340-580 was not adjusted to reflect the actual configuration of this airplane. Dude. So the minimum equipment list was not reflecting what was actually required for this airplane. They found that the flight operations manager decided that the aircraft could be operated with the auxiliary power unit generator used as a substitute for the inoperative left-hand main AC generator. A.K.A. the first officer. They found that the pilot in command accepted the responsibility of operating the aircraft with the APU generator used as a substitute for the inoperative left-hand main AC. So you had the first officer, who was the flight ops manager, say, yes, this is fine for the airline. And then the pilot, the captain, who was the pilot in command for this flight, had to go, I approve. We're going to fly this airplane this way. And you died. That's how everything well, got signed off. I mean, off. little did they know. I know, little right. did they right. know. But still, it's not... Per the minimum equipment list, that's how it was. But also, this speaks a lot to how small this airline was. Yeah. That literally their flight ops manager was a pilot for the airline. And was in the cockpit, and was flying this flight, and was able to make this decision before flying this flight, while being in the cockpit. They found that the CVR became inoperative after an... An upshift in the engine RPM prior to departure, thanks to the loss of electrical power to the CVR. They found that the FDR registered three out of the four parameters, pressure, altitude, heading, and airspeed. Not Gs. Not Gs. It also registered that it was subject to vibrational forces from external sources. That was a mouthful to read, but it had incorrect marks due to vibrations. Like I said. Because the tail was not properly on the airplane yeah so literally they had the tape for the altitude and it was literally supposed to be scratching a line of what the altitude was into this metal tape and it would jump so there were double lines so they were getting multiple altitude ratings on the fdr that wasn't right that was because of vibrations which i didn't explicitly say it before i I feel like it was slightly assumed it affected the fdr because the fdr was in the tail yep yeah, if you haven't figured that out yet, you haven't listened to this podcast enough. Right. Ever. The, the black boxes are in the tail. Always in the tail. Because usually when you crash, you go nose first. Turns out, that's what happened. So, and that's how they were able to find out that the flight data recorder had these marks because it was in the tail. That which was, was vibrating. By the, yeah. Right. So now I'm going to go through these next few pretty quick because these were all the things they determined weren't factors. But these are pretty important. We'll talk about them afterward. It wasn't bombed. It wasn't shot down. Right. We'll get to that. They found that the events were not influenced by other activities or traffic in the air. The events were not influenced by weather conditions. The events were not influenced by military activity. The flight was not the subject of sabotage. The aircraft's propellers and engines were operating normally. So that was just a whole bunch of findings right there. And all of those were to say these were not the problems. It wasn't a bomb. It wasn't the F-16. It wasn't the NATO show of force. It wasn't anything It wasn't like a show that. of force. It was a military exercise. A military exercise. They found that all horizontal tail surfaces and the rudder were subject to violent oscillations or flutter. The vibrations. Thanks to the APU. And the bad bolts. And the everything. Everything. They found that vital parts of the tail structure failed and caused the loss of control of the aircraft, which was a causal factor. 
Yeah, that's a big problem when it's in the tail, because the tail kind of is super important. It's stability. Uh, <laughs> once upon a time, we had a guest ask if you could fly without the tail. And once upon a time, the answer was no. And once upon a time, there was a crash that proved that. Not this one. We will talk about that someday. It is massive. It is the deadliest single aircraft accident in history. Oh, yeah. Japan Airlines Flight 123. Yep. We'll talk about that one of these days. Yeah, because you, you control up and down. And right and left. Well, roll and roll. Yes. yes. For the, in this case, it is the the yaw. Yeah. We're mm-hmm. talking about, which also then keeps the airplane from rolling over. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot. It controls all three degrees of motion. It does. So it's a little important that you know. Minorly. Yes. As a matter of fact, the tail is so much more important than important than even the ailerons. If you were to lose both ailerons for some reason, you could actually still control the airplane using the rudder. Because if you yaw enough, forces act on the wings in that the airplane will roll into a turn. You can also control with engines. Mm-hmm. Correct. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. Ha-ha. Physics. Anyways. They found that the flight crew did not identify the problem in time to take corrective action. <laughs> no, really. I don't think they had any idea what was going on. Well, because well, the plane not. just kind of went to the right, and then they couldn't get it back. Right. Well, and the one thing that was noted was that it was probably really evident actually in the cabin how bad the vibrations were in the airplane just in general well towards when they actually lost control some of the people that had flown on the airplane in the flights prior to had said though that the airplane was really vibrating not really they noticed a little vibration yes but more than normal one person said more than normal yes and that was someone who flew frequently most passengers on this plane in previous flights said, no, they didn't notice anything in particular. Part of that is because they weren't running the APU during the flight, so... Right. But a big part of this whole catering thing that went on was because this flight in particular wanted to be catered for the celebration that they were having. So it was expected, too, that people probably noticed because their drinks were vibrating and their food was hard to eat because it was vibrating. Especially on this flight. That's all speculation, though. It is all speculation. They don't have anything to prove that, but they said that it was likely noticeable because these vibrations were pretty heavy in the final moments before the airplane lost control. Only because the APU was running. Right. Again, it not causal, but contributing. Right. But also, these old airplanes just vibrate a lot anyway, so I don't blame them for saying the pilots didn't have time. They didn't know. Well, you have to imagine the cockpit is a lot farther away from the tail than even the passenger area. Yeah. If you think about it. I mean, this isn't a huge plane. I just looked up a picture of it, right? Mm-hmm. But you still have to think that by the time the vibrations get to the cockpit, they're probably not going to be as bad as they are toward the back of the plane. Right. They're so, dampened. Right. Well, and quite frankly, this airplane had one of the most archaic rudder control systems in any airplane, and it was so poorly designed for a situation like this there was no way they could ever get control back. You might have been confused earlier when I said that they were using weights to control the rudder. You know, um, picture a grandfather clock. You know the weights? Yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they look like, and they're just hanging there. Yeah, they literally like, hang in the tail, and they say during most maneuvers, they manage to maintain stability thanks to centrifugal force. Centrifugal? Cent- centrifugal force. Centripical? No, they're centripetal and centrifugal. Centrifugal forces. Centrifugal? It's not, it's not the roundy one. No, those are both roundy ones. One's inward, one's outward. Right. Technically, centrifugal force doesn't exist. Yes. So these forces, these physics forces, we'll just call them that, uh, 
would actually hold them during most maneuvers relatively in place. So they wouldn't swing one way or the other or cause any major problems. But when the airplane suddenly becomes super vibrating and... Well, the rudder was going left to right to its limits. Right. It, it started going out of control. They would go right and left to its limits because of the vibration. And eventually, once the airplane lost control, those weights became useless. And they, and they struck their maintenance doors right. and sent them flying. They struck the maintenance doors, sent them flying. They were likely hanging out of the maintenance doors, this and that. They were probably just completely worthless. So at that point, the rudder was stuck to one side. That system isn't used anymore. No. In case anyone Obviously. was wondering. Obviously. <laughs> Since we've no. never talked about it. Usually, it, they're either run by cables. Or hydraulics. Or hydraulics. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Most typically hydraulics in modern airplanes. Anything you will fly on will probably be cable or hydraulic driven. And if you fly on something with this archaic system, good for you. That's really old airplane. It's a classic airplane, probably flying for historic reasons. That's about it. And good luck. Hopefully you don't lose control of the airplane. So something we didn't really talk about much, but was pretty evident to the investigators in the search and rescue, was that this airplane broke up in the final moments of flight as yes, well. Yes, I talked about it. It quite broke up. Um, as a matter of fact, both wings fell off and then the, air, the fuselage fell in three. As it does. As it does. Typical. They found that the wings failed symmetrically under negative G-load. So in other words, the wings failed at the same time. At the same. They just went boop. Yep. They just came off. Yeah, because they hit their G-limit, which is exactly what they're designed to do, as a matter of fact. They found that while the aircraft was still at high altitude, sheets of honeycomb from the shroud doors between the fin and rudder were released and fell slowly into the water. This was the source of the radar echo observed by the Swedish defense radar stations and the approach radar at Alborg Airport. Thank you for repeating everything I've said. Yes, so that's the honeycomb maintenance doors. Fell off. They found that the vertical stabilizer was attached to the fuselage with pins and sleeves, which did not comply with the specified values for hardness and tensile strength, and were therefore not airworthy. Tensile strength. Ultimate tensile strength. As opposed to ultimate compressive strength, which is different for all who care. Yep. Take a material science class from Dr. Chris Yakaki. He'll explain it all. <laughs> They found that the abnormal wear, which had developed in the vertical fin attachments, was not disclosed. So It wasn't in the maintenance documents. Right, it wasn't in the maintenance documents. The weird wear patterns that were happening. One thing that was kind of weird to me. So they replaced the one uh, attachment assembly. Mm -hmm. I would feel like that's like when you replace a tire on your car. You should probably yeah. do it in pairs. I'm like, why? Or like all four all of them? them. Like, why not do all four of them? They probably all four have been on the plane for the same amount of time, if you think about it. Considering they all have the same uh, specs deficiencies. Yeah, so yeah. why replacing just one? My thought would be... All of them? Yeah. Well, they probably didn't do it for, uh, like, cost reasons would be my no, guess. Oh, that's fair. And they thought, if we just replace one, it should in theory, hold. I think if they did at least two, and they did it like on the diagonal, probably Something. would have been better, right? But they didn't, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. They found that undampened oscillations in the elevator contributed to the destruction of the empennage. It failed. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> they found that the APU was installed with a front support of inferior quality and unknown origin. It's a funny way to write that. Another counterfeit part. Another counterfeit part, and it broke. Wow, I wonder. <laughs> yeah. In the episode, they showed like some really janky, broken, welded part. I'm like, that's not actually the part that broke. 
and that's not where it broke. But yes, it was welded poorly and with the wrong material. Right. They found that faulty, out-of-date maintenance instructions and inadequate maintenance procedures left the problems in the APU's front support undetected. They were using really outdated maintenance procedures for this airplane. To be fair, even by this time, these airplanes were old. Now they're really old, but they were old in the 80s. So this is ugly. Yeah. They found that the airworthiness of the aircraft at the time it was transferred to Norway was based on the Canadian Certificate of Airworthiness. Owing to the fact that the maintenance instructions were incomplete, the basis on which this Certificate of Airworthiness was issued may have been unsound. So in other words, that's a really weird way of saying... It wasn't airworthy. It wasn't even airworthy when it was certified in Canada, before it went to Norway. Pew pew on the Canadians. And then it was just said, sure, it's certified in Norway because Canada certified it. So all around bad, bad practice. Yeah. They found the airworthiness requirements for the aircraft were not met while it was in service in Norway as the minimum equipment list and the maintenance instructions had not been updated to include systems and components currently installed in the aircraft. So the minimum equipment list didn't even include the equipment that was actually installed in the airplane. Oh boy. It was outdated. That's a big problem, because if it doesn't even talk about the equipment that's actually on that airplane installed in that airplane, how do you even have an effective minimum equipment list? You don't. Right. That's the problem. You Um, could be flying without something you desperately need. Which wasn't really the case here. No, but, but if they had that AC generator, this never would have happened. Well, it never, not would never have happened, but it wouldn't have happened on this flight. I love the last finding. Yes. They found that Partner had financial problems at the time of the accident and filed for bankruptcy shortly after the accident. Yeah, you, I would say so. So you might also remember that the flight crew, they didn't talk about this either. You might also remember that the flight crew didn't have much time on these airplanes. Yeah. Compared to the number of hours they actually had. It was like their most recent acquisition. These airplanes were brand new to the fleet. They had four of them. They were brand new to the fleet. They had just bought them like a few months before. Even though they're old. Yeah. Yep. Not. You want to know why? They were on big buck discount. That's why. Yeah, they're old. They were old. (laughs) They weren't properly maintained. Now for the probable cause. The causes in the report verbatim. The accident was caused by loss of control due to the destruction of primary control surfaces in the tail section, which in turn was caused by aeroelastic oscillations initiated by abnormal clearances in the vertical stabilizer attachments to the fuselage structure. The condition of the attachments was a result of excessive wear in pins and sleeves used in this structural joint. The pins and sleeves were of an inferior quality and did not satisfy specified values for hardness and tensile strength. They had also been installed and inspected using substandard maintenance procedures. Undampened oscillations in the elevator contributed to the structural failure of the impenage. The vibratory patterns in the impenage and the oscillations in the surfaces were affected by the fact that the APU was operating with a faulty front support, which was of a non-standard design and of unknown origin. It's a mouthful all to say what we talked about. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. The tail, vibration... Oh, no. Reading this cause, I would like to amend an earlier statement of mine. This was the same cause as the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. The term that they used, aeroelastic oscillations. So what that means is part of the vibration was caused by wind going over it, which is the same thing that happened with the bridge. It is not necessarily anything to do with the natural resonant frequency of the structure. 
Right. Okay. That's that's the big thing that did that is taught about the bridge that did not actually happen. Right. It wasn't anything to do with the resonant frequency of the material of the bridge. It it's was... just the fact that there was wind going over it at a certain frequency that fed itself. Right. Which is what happened here. The vibration fed itself. Right. Aided by the vibration of the EPU and the just wind going over the surfaces. Right. Yeah. And oscillations become uncontrollable, eventually, if they're left unchecked. The the mathematical term is they become divergent. Yes, divergent. To ah. that point, they had been convergent, mm -hmm. where they had not been out of control. Mm -hmm. When any system diverges, it's bad. Right. So now for recommendations. So this is a little complicated because they wrote them out kind of complicated. I'm going to explain quite a bit about what they actually talk about in here. And the majority of it has to do with these counterfeit parts and the lack of documentation. Because it's a big deal. And the lack of certification. And this big industry that exists. And tied hand in hand with that is the financial instability of companies like Partner. And they recommended that when aircraft as well as airlines are audited and checked for safety, that financial portion of that airline should also be taken into account because that can affect the actual safety of the airline when they start buying cheap parts. Right. So when they start running out of money, you need to start looking to make sure that the parts that have been replaced probably most recently aren't counterfeit parts. Also refer to repairs like Chuck. Yes. So I love that we keep referring to previous episodes. Yes. It makes me so happy. I like that we have enough that we can refer back to previous episodes. <laughs> How many have we mentioned in this episode? A lot. You mentioned Chalk. You mentioned... 587. 587. You mentioned the Comet. Oh. Oh, right. At least. Yes. And we've also mentioned ones we haven't covered yet. By the way, I always put the ones that we talk about on the website so that if you want to, if you have not done so already, you and can you listen don't, to them. And you don't have to go hunting for them. Yes. Because... That's a lot. So the other recommendations they talk about, just in brief, are the fact that it was a known problem on the conveyors that vibrations could exist in the tail and that these could be dangerous. They also talk about how there should be better tracking of documentation, such as the flight manuals and the flight operations manuals and the minimum equipment list in the airplane. Not much of a problem when the airline doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and didn't shortly thereafter. This accident really put them under. But, so let's talk about something that did change. And that's not just a consequence of this accident, but of this massive industry that existed that was causing problems across the industry. So I looked up some statistics on this, and it's staggering. It's still unbelievable, actually. So one consequence that did come is now, I think it's federal charges. It is. So these are federal charges in the United States, as they are in most countries. Why? Because now the FBI is involved in this entire industry. Oh, they are great. constantly tracking these. And they've actually employed the FAA to do so. How? Because the inspectors within the industry, the FAA inspectors that are in all parts of the industry, all over, they touch everything on every airplane at some point in time, are now trained to look for counterfeit parts and bogus parts. They have and to tags. Meet, they have to meet requirements. And tags, yes. They have to meet requirements, and there's a lot more stringent requirements on these. And they've done 
It's much like the dollar bill. You think about it in history, it was a lot easier to make counterfeit bills because they didn't do a whole lot of watermarking or secret marks or anything that was really hard to reproduce. They would just print paper and say, this is money. Great. Well, eventually they figured out that that could be counterfeited like crazy, and they made all the watermarks, the little hidden marks, all these little details that make it specifically legal. So now there's a lot of these similar things in place for airplane parts, such as the tags. There's a lot more stringent way of creating these certifications for parts. The FAA has a lot bigger hand in certifying those parts. But... That said, so, like we said, they found quite a few shops in the Miami area that really put a, most of these parts out on the market, and once they figured out that that's where they were coming from, they managed to do a lot of damage to this industry and start to knock down this counterfeit parts industry quite a bit. Now, granted, this made parts more expensive, because more airlines had to buy real certified parts. Oh, what a big deal. Yes. Eventually, but, it does hit the passengers and your ticket price, but... Yes, so pay, pay less money and not be safe, or pay more money and be safe. Right, you get what you pay for. So, that said, there was quite a few things that came about quite quite a period of time after this accident, actually. Primary of which was the U.S. Congress passed the Aircraft Safety Act of 2000, which allowed the government to target the sale and use of these unapproved parts, meaning that it became a federal crime. And it also allowed the federal government to have the resources needed to target these industries and be constantly investigating, looking for these counterfeit parts. It's really hard to track down every single counterfeiter out there, but they have done a pretty good job, quite frankly. Now, obviously, it still exists, and it's proved to be a problem. But, like I said, the FAA inspectors have become a big part of this and helping to dampen this industry. But it's not as big of a problem as it used to be. It still exists mostly in general aviation. That's a problem. Because you still need pilots and they still need to learn how to fly somehow. When you start talking about the airplanes that these students step into being unsafe, that's scary. Especially going all the way back to the beginning of the episode... We have a very close friend who is flying general aviation planes currently. Yes. yes. So, some statistics, and I'm taking this from the wonderful source that is Wikipedia. But mind you, this is still really interesting because I do believe that these statistics are pretty true. And I, that's probably, this is only probably the number they could really come up with. An FAA study concluded that from May 1973 to April 1996, unapproved parts contributed to 174 aircraft accidents and minor incidents, causing 39 injuries and 17 fatalities. That's just within the United States. So, this number has come down quite a bit, and these numbers will prove that, but what they will also prove is that it still exists, and it's still a dying breed in itself. Unapproved parts are considered to have played a role in about 24 crashes that killed 7 people and injured 18 between 2010 and 2016. What do we know about that period of time? Is that there were no commercial accidents in the United States that killed anybody. That means these were all general aviation related. So that just proves that this is a constantly fight, you know, this is a constant battle 
in the industry to eliminate these counterfeit parts. And the airlines now, the FAA has made it so that the airlines are basically required to buy the parts directly from the manufacturers or from a handful of FAA-certified and approved distributors. They can't buy them from brokers and third parties or anything like that. The airlines can't buy from those. They have to buy the certified part directly from the manufacturer or one of their distributors directly. So that's a huge thing. Now, this is in place in most of the world, too, but I did want to talk a little bit about some of the places that people do fly, because I've heard scary stories in the last decade or so, in that in third world countries, of course, they fly typically older airplanes, really old airplanes, as a matter of fact, and that allows these airlines to operate with very, very, very marginal safety This is a tough subject, but an example of this that I heard from somebody within the industry many years ago was an airline based in, I believe it was in Iran, needed parts for one of their airplanes. They had a 707 that had problems. And so what they did is with their actual operating airplane, they created a flight to a location in Africa they wouldn't normally fly to. They operated this route to this third world country that is very quiet, subtle, and hush-hush about their aircraft parts, and they pulled some from a junkyard, took them into the cockpit of the airplane, and smuggled them back into Iran, which Iran isn't necessarily known for bad maintenance, per se, on the airplanes, but this is really bad practice. They were operating old airplanes, and they needed the parts, but they couldn't get them. So they bought these unapproved parts from these junkyarders, these scavengers, and they smuggled them back into the country to use them on certified airplanes that were under the watch of the IATA and the ICAO. This is where these problems, these loopholes still exist, basically, in that they aren't necessarily even having to buy them and have them shipped to them or anything like that. They'll literally go to the place, smuggle the part, and bring it back to be used on another airplane, and it's probably not in good shape. It's probably just enough to make the airplane fly. To put it in perspective, it's like if you have a part on your car that's not working, and you go to a junkyard and get a part off another car in the junkyard for Mm -hmm. you to use, that part may not be a good part, and you won't know because you can't test it in the junkyard. Yes. So buying parts from spare parts or airplanes that are broken down or scraps, it's not always a good idea because you don't know the kind of condition those parts are in. Right. With cars, there's a lot less scrutiny on the certification and everything because something happens, you pull over. That's usually how it goes. You can't pull over in flight. You can't pull over (laughs) an airplane. Something happens in flight, probably not going to end well. So that's really kind of my rant about all this, but... The reality is, is the numbers have come down a lot, and what we can say is that it's really targeting a very specific industry now that hasn't had its fair share of auditing, I would say, up to this point. And I, personally, would really like to see the general aviation industry a little more scrutinized when it comes to parts buying. That's key, and that's critical moving forward in aviation. Yes, does that mean it's probably going to get more expensive? Probably. We have to find ways to mitigate those expenses, but it's safety. Safety matters. It just has to happen. 
Yeah, so let's say you have a an airplane, right, that you own that you're going to fly. You need a part because something broke, something's not, you know. Right. A mechanic told you you need this part in order to fly. You can't afford that part, but you find it somewhere for really cheap. Mm-hmm. And you buy it because it's cheap. Right. And that part causes you to crash and die. Right. That's basically what that means. It's, it's that simple. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't want it to happen in your own car. You don't want it to happen in your own airplane. That's just the truth. So. Yeah. No one wants to break down, especially when you're in the air. Yes. Panic. A lot of panic. So this has been my TED Talk on counterfeit, non-approved parts. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cover this subject again in the future because this isn't the only one. No, it will come up again. But this is definitely a big, big topic that we haven't really covered before. And it is amazing how easy it was for them to procure these parts and for them to look real. Yeah, that's scary. So that was... Partner 394. Thanks for listening, as always. By the way, thanks for those of you who have sent us messages and emails the past couple of days or so, or weeks. We enjoy reading your emails. Just a few notes real quick so that everyone knows. The codes that we use are always certified codes. So we, we, we had a message saying that we, we might be making up the titles of our episodes. We don't. Those are IATA and ICAO codes. Yeah. We, we always use IATA or ICAO codes. If we can't find them, we just use the actual name of the airline. One subject that we want to discuss is how we talk about these number of deaths. They are devastating. These are people that are dying. And we're not making light of that in any fashion. And we've talked about this before. At the same time, we don't want to dwell on those negative feelings that come with mass death. Yeah. It makes it so we we are stuck in this emotional rut and we can't take we don't absorb that which there is to learn. We will have more deaths on this podcast than any true crime podcast you will ever listen to because we're talking about hundreds of people that we cover a month. Please realize, we do understand this is a hard topic to talk about, but we try to focus on what happened and how was it fixed so it doesn't happen again, rather than being focused on death, if that makes sense. I used this word in the very first episode, and I was immediately told by somebody that they appreciated it. If you ever notice, every time I talk about those that have passed away in these accidents, I always use the word perished. And that's because it was a recommendation to me from that person in the very first episode after I used that word just for the context that I was speaking in. He said after that, he was like, I really like that word. Continue to use that. Don't say killed. Don't say died. Don't say anything in that respect because perished has this lighter, more respectable meaning behind it to understand that those were lives lost, not purposefully killed, not haphazard died a horrible death, which obviously happened, but perished is a respectable word to treat them. And we've gotten emails like this before, but just again to restate, we understand people are dying. We're not making light of that, okay? 
in any fashion. Please note that that is not what we're trying to do here. But our purpose here is to educate you about lessons learned. And to be entertaining. And it's hard to be entertaining when you're depressed all the time. Right, if we're always (laughs) being depressed about the number of deaths. That was our other small rant. By the way, we do appreciate messages and emails. And that... thank you so much to all the really positive ones that we get, because it helps us get through the negative one. We literally got a really good one, and then that one, and, and then, then another really, good, really one. good one. And we were like, well, you know, part of it, we'll, and we'll, talk, we'll probably talk about it in one of the post episodes, so those of you who are patrons will hear more about it. But again, thank you. Please realize... We understand. We We do hear you sometimes. We don't answer emails. (laughs) We do that for a specific reason. If you have questions on that, you can ask us. But most of you who are listening, if you sent us an email, we probably answered you. Or a message or anything. If we haven't, you might want to just... Check yourself. Check check in. (laughs) Sometimes we forget. We're humans. That too, yeah. Anyway, that was kind of a somber way to end the episode, but... Thank you. (laughs) Please send in your uh, holiday listener stories. And send in any questions you may have. Again, all of that information is on the website. And we will catch you guys next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.